The lockdown in the United Kingdom is set to continue for at least the next three weeks, probably far longer. Schools will not be reopening anytime soon, and there is a shortage of personal protective equipment in hospitals. I'm Marcus Stead. In this week's podcast, Greg Lance Watkins and I assess the situation in Britain and around the world. And we also look into the effect the lockdown is having on people's personal relationships and social lives. Do stay with us. Well, Greg, it's been seven days since we did our last podcast, and a great deal has happened since then. As you and I rightly predicted, um, there has been an announcement that the lockdown in all parts of the United Kingdom is going to continue for at least another three weeks. That much is now clear. But I'm particularly interested in what's going on in countries that we are told by the mainstream media, that, and I say this, this very strange narrative as far as I'm concerned, of countries that are apparently two or three weeks ahead of us. Now, for example, in Spain, uh, the story of the last 10 days or so, um, taking us to the day before yesterday, looking at the graphs, is that in terms of daily cases, it's been between 3,200 and 6,600. It's fluctuated between those two numbers. In terms of deaths in Spain, it's fluctuated between 318 and 603. Now in Italy, Daily cases, 2,667 at the low end, 4,694 at the high end. Deaths between 431 and 619. Germany cases just above 2,000, just below 4,000, I should say. Deaths between 104 and 309. And then here in the United Kingdom, by far the worst day for cases was the 10th of April with 8,681 the lowest um, until day day before yesterday was 4,342 on the 13th of April. And the last three days have all been well above 5,000. Deaths, we saw 980 at a peak. The figures released on Monday, 596 deaths, lowest for a while. Now today it's gone up again in, in excess of 800. I know that's a lot of statistics for our listeners to take in very early on. But what I'm getting at, Greg, is... There was a peak in Spain and Italy and up to a point in Germany as well. They're no longer at that peak, but what we are seeing is they may be down by about a third, but they're not consistently falling lower and lower and lower. They've gone down by a third and they seem to have stayed roughly at that level, give or take. And that, I think, is a big cause for concern. I'm not as concerned as you because I think this is what everyone was aiming to do. Um, I know it's what the British government stated in the early days was the aim. Don't forget, the British government uh, went along with World Health Organization uh, pronouncements on the issue and didn't have lockdowns and didn't consider it a pandemic, although there were those amongst the government who were saying that it was a pandemic Uh, They did not accept it until after they had had lockdown in Britain and after, uh, but before the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic. We were in lockdown. We knew damn well it was a pandemic from the results that were coming through. Then our figures were not designed to stamp out the virus, which some people naively thought it was. 
and we have the opposition with no realistic alternative and the media with no um, grown-up questions about the issue just looking for ways to blame the government for something that is way beyond their control and blame the government for not doing the right thing when there just isn't a handbook on what to do they merely took the advice that was available to them and let's face it it's some of the best advice in the world because we have a fairly sophisticated science fraternity in this country and they decided that they would have a lockdown and the degree of that lockdown now it has not been as harsh as that in spain and italy but it has had the effect that was required which was people keep on saying the peak the peak the peak the whole purpose of a lockdown is to make damn sure you don't have a peak it's not to eradicate cases it's to have cases presenting because you know you can't stop it have cases presenting at hospitals or with a need for hospitalization at a rate that your hospital structure can survive at and succeed at the aim is to have x number of people coming into the hospital when the hospital has x plus five ventilators so there is always a slight tolerance capacity and just in case it went wrong and it grew higher than expected hoped for and planned for with lockdown the government has built somewhere in the region of 20,000 nightingale hospital beds to absorb any excess numbers coming in right okay the, what, you're, what you're saying yeah what, what you're saying there is important now in terms and i'm glad you made that point about peaks in particular because this is a narrative that we're seeing from the mainstream media that i believe is an incorrect narrative and i'm glad you said what you did because i think you've got that right in terms of best case scenarios let's look at the example of what scott morrison has achieved in australia as an example where he has the measures they've had there in the lockdown has got cases down to a very very low daily level and there are days now where the number of daily cases is in low double figures the number of deaths is in single figures i think there have been occasional days where there have been no deaths at all but prime minister scott morrison has rightly said in my view that we cannot alleviate the lockdown we cannot loosen the lockdown and he has a great deal of public support in australia for continuing the lockdown policy because he knows full well that if you start allowing barbecues sporting events bars to open and life to return to some sort of normality and specifically as well on top of that what would be horrendous would be to allow flights coming in and out of australia he knows full well that this would lead to a second wave so getting cases down to a low and sustainable level or even to, to a tiny level as he has achieved there 
is only half the battle. Even if you get it down to those sort of figures, if you start to ease off to any great extent, you're asking for trouble. And he seems to understand that. And Donald Trump in the United States, where they haven't even got close to getting it under control to the extent Australia has, we had some frankly dangerous comments from President Trump the other day. And we saw he was effectively in that long rambling press conference he gave, he was effectively encouraging people to protest outside town halls and so forth to demand that lockdowns at state level are removed. You've got places like Jacksonville, Florida, where the mayor or the town sheriff, whatever you call him in that area, was allowing people to go out and do what they want. And we saw images of people going to the beach and everything else. I think you can put very good money indeed, sadly, on there being a big spike in cases in places like Jacksonville about two to three weeks from now because of Trump's stupidity. And also, as the mayor of New York said the other day, he said, I invite President Trump to actually read the Constitution. I decide when this lockdown ends in New York City, not you, Mr. President. And what Donald Trump is doing is that he knows in one sense he's stuck between a rock and a hard place because he's got effectively seeking re-election in the autumn. If he carries on with the lockdown, he's going to crash the economy. If he lifts the lockdown, there's going to be a huge risk to human life. And it seems as though he's going for the latter. And I'm afraid I find that absolutely reprehensible. Well, his main core support that he's aiming for would appear to be undertakers because they're going to be very, very busy. Let's go back to something you just said. Australia has a very good record on this. Australia has approximately three deaths per million. New Zealand has approximately two deaths per million. Canada has 39 deaths per million. Germany, 51. Portugal, 67. Ireland, 116. And Britain, 228. And all the people seeking to try and be smart-ass with the government and put it down for their own political gain or to write some cheapskates story in the mainstream media quotes that list of figures. It doesn't quote France at 296 per million, Italy at 384, Spain at 428, and Belgium at 470. Mm. It's convenient to leave out the high figures to make the government look bad. But what you must do, and here I would disagree with you on uh, applauding what Australia is doing for keeping it at three. If you look at those figures alongside a demographic act, map, of density of population, it almost exactly correlates. Britain is very densely populated, about twice as densely populated as, as Ireland. We have 228 deaths per million. Ireland has 116 deaths per million. Australia is three cities and a collection of roads connecting them. 
there is no population of any meaningful numbers in Australia when it comes to looking at the landmass. Australia, you're looking at a continent with a tiny population. So one would expect their deaths per million to register much lower. You would expect the virus to take a great deal longer to spread amongst that population, as with New Zealand. And what is New Zealand planning on doing as it sits there with two deaths per million on those two beautiful islands so far from anywhere, no flights in, no flights out, no shipping in, no shipping out. What does it expect to happen? Do they expect to remain in the same state as back in the days of sail when virtually no vessels came or went from New Zealand? Well, I think the answer to your question is of what New Zealand is trying to do is hold out until this vaccine becomes available because they know, well, well Prime Minister Arden in, in, in um, New Zealand has said that we're going to, you know, we, we went early and we went hard, so to speak, in terms of a lockdown and, and public health has been protected as a result of that. And it does seem from the language she is using that if necessary, she is prepared to live under these conditions until a vaccine comes along. Now, we've all got a decision to make. There'll be a very large economic cost. I'm going to come on to this in a sec. But we can always rebuild our economy in time. But once you're dead, you're dead, so to speak. So there, there is a tra trade-off there in that sense. But one example that gets talked about a lot by those who are suspicious of our lockdown is they compare it to Sweden. Now, I talked about this on the radio last week. It's got know. no population either. Hang on, hang on. I'm coming on to this. Uh, we, I talked about this on the radio last week, and the big point I made is that people say, ah, oh, look at the figures in Sweden. You look at what's actually happened in terms of, of deaths and cases in Sweden in the last seven, eight days. It spiked quite considerably. And also, a lot of people... Right, I'll, I'll take you up on what you just said there a second ago, because this is important. Sweden has a population of, what, seven and a half million, which is two and a half times the population of Wales. And yet in terms of land mass, it has seven times the land mass of Wales. So it's, it's by definition a much more sparsely populated country. And also I should point out that there's a culture in Sweden, okay, the welfare state is much, much bigger, but welfare dependency is also frowned upon uh, in a way that it's not in this country. There's that, that is a sort of carrot and stick society, which is very different to how ours operates. But also to say Sweden is doing nothing is also incorrect because you look at what they've actually done, a nationwide ban on public events for more than 50 people, a ban on visiting the elderly in care homes. There are rules requiring cafes, bars and restaurants to offer table service only and limit crowding, for example, by spacing out tables and you are served at the table rather than at the bar. Um, so there are things going on in Sweden and life and the economy is far quieter in Sweden than it would normally be, but it's being done by a sort of consensual way, knowing full well that Stockholm with its, what, 700,000 people living in the city of Stockholm, everything else is, is very largely spread out over quite, quite a large well, a very large rural area, the rest of the population and lots of small towns and villages and everything else is how the rest of Sweden lives. So what I'm getting at is don't compare oranges and apples here. 
we are a densely populated island. Sweden is not. So don't compare like with like is what I'm saying. Correction. Compare like with like. Don't compare complete opposites. Mm. You, sorry, you said don't compare like with like. You must compare like with like to come up with anything worth talking about. Hmm. Because it just isn't realistic to look at other countries with completely varied situations to that of the United Kingdom when you are making comments about the United Kingdom. How many countries around the world to date have issued two billion articles of private personal protection equipment. Two billion. Which is how many items have been delivered to frontline carers in the health service and the like in Britain. And it's not enough. But you can't castigate the government well, hang on, what we've actually seen, what, well, what we've actually seen, and there, there's reports in today's Daily Mail and today's Daily Telegraph about this, is we have, well, a couple of things have happened in this country, like, for example, more than a month ago, we shipped a huge amount of PPE equipment to China, of all places, and also, they are now saying the very few manufacturers of it in this country that exist, we, we've got a small number of factories that are capable of making this stuff, they said, we were emailing both the government and NHS trust management four, five, six weeks ago, we were saying, tell us what you need, um, t t t tell us when you want it and so forth. They weren't even getting replies to those emails. They were putting in phone calls. No one was answering them. So I think things have gone wrong here. I didn't say it had been perfect, but five, six weeks ago, may I remind you, we were talking in terms of having sent about a quarter of a million items of PPE to China. And what a sensible move, minded of what we knew about this virus five or six weeks ago, which was that the World Health Organization did not consider it a pandemic. It was just a really nasty local outbreak in China of a SARS-MERS-type virus. It was not expected to be of any consequence anywhere else in the world. And aren't you glad that we sent the Chinese quarter of a million items of PPE at that stage when we really thought that our government really thought that we could help China to stop this virus spreading? If we had succeeded, we'd be hero of the day. However, the World Health Organization, which when you look at, around it, has absolutely no qualified people capable of making decisions on items like whether it is or isn't a pandemic. And as a result, we are getting millions of items the PPE from China because we have that element of goodwill.
that we were seeing very obviously now, as I just said, there were emails not replied to, phone calls not replied to, going weeks and At weeks. At which stage? Well, Nobody going go, going back weeks and weeks ago, NHS exactly. trust managers and white old mandarins were not answering phone calls from company and emails from companies offering saying, "Look, you tell us what you need." They didn't get a reply to those emails. We didn't need anything at that stage. No, but you plan ahead when you think something like this is going to happen. We didn't and, think it was going to. We were taking the advice of the World Health Organization. Well, you and I were talking about it five or six weeks ago. We can look back on the archive. People can listen to it. So I can't work out why. The Whitehall Mandarins and the NHS trust managers, they didn't even answer those emails or answer the, they didn't even pick up the phone when it rang. And therefore, these organizations, these factories, and there were several of them in this country, then accepted orders from Italy, France, and wherever, and thought, well, hang on, this is clearly where the demand is. Off we go. We're going to box our stuff up, and, and that's where it's going to end up. And sure enough, that is exactly what happened. But yeah. we, we, are, we are where we are with this now. And there was um, David Nieper's factory in uh, Alfreton in Derbyshire was, uh, was on television. Uh, when was it now? Yesterday morning. And he runs a small scale. Think of it, those of you who watch Coronation Street, like Mike Baldwin's old factory or the one Carla Connor has run more recently, uh, a sort of stitch and bitch type factory with the electric sewing machines. He, he switched his entire supply, this, this NEPA factory in, in Alfreton, to making PPE equipment. And he can't make it quickly enough. He's got his staff working longer hours than usual, overtime, whatever you want. Now, in World War II, we had a spirit in this country. Well, it was compulsory. Government took over essential uh, factories and so forth for, for the help with the war effort. And we have seen in the last two, three weeks how these Nightingale hospitals and the Welsh equivalent, the Dragon's Heart Hospital in the Principality Stadium, had been taken over, build a hospital in 10 days with the help of the army. Is it now not time to say to factory owners like NEPA, let's get hold of a warehouse somewhere, you take over because you clearly know what you're doing. We'll find out staff locally who, within reasonable commuting distance who've been furloughed, who know how to use an electric sewing machine. We get you the equipment in one way or another. We get it into there within days, weeks if necessary, but no longer than that. And we start making PPE on an industrial scale in a way we've never done before. In the same way in World War II, it was bullets you were making and military stuff you were making. Now, there is no, there's no enemies we need to shoot at as such but there is this enemy in terms of this virus that's killing NHS staff. So we need to start making PPE and scaling up factories like Nipah's factory very, very quickly. I think that you will find has been the line all along. It's very, very easy to criticize what the government has done. Any fool can do that, but to do better, can you imagine any organization that would have done better? Do you think the opposition would have done better? We don't have an opposition in this country. Oh, precisely. So. so why are we giving our government a kicking when they have done the very best that they possibly could? We elected them. Well, this isn't a kicking. This is constructive journalistic holding them to account, which is what we're supposed to do. No, it's not. It's a typical mainstream media. Let's ask the difficult question that we haven't got an answer to ourselves. I haven't got we an answer to it, but surely out, it can be done. Surely to goodness it can be done. came out with these comments right at the beginning. Hmm. I was saying we shouldn't be building Nightingale hospitals. We should be empowering our health service to work in conjunction with our local government who have trained personnel in the form of health and safety departments 
to handle just such contingencies, they had available immediately suitable premises that were owned by the council, leisure centers and schools that could be converted into local additional emergency hospital beds where the nurses and the doctors would not have to travel to Helengon to get to or from their place, their new place of work, where it was on human scale, not 4,000 beds in a great big open area that had to be so totally reconstructed. Schools would provide assembly rooms for big wards, and they'd also provide classrooms that would be ideally suited to smaller wards. Leisure centers, likewise. All of this was possible. Our government, with the wisdom and the advice they had available to them, made the decision to go in a different direction. And having made that decision, I backed them all the way. Well, you've got to look at what's actually gone on in both Wales and England in terms of mistakes that have been made. Now, it was over the weekend that Wales's First Minister, Mark Drakeford, gave a televised interview where he admitted that his targets of testing 5,000 people per day for COVID-19 infection in Wales by mid-April has not been achieved and now never will be achieved. And then yesterday we had Matt Hancock, who's England's health minister, saying that his targets in England, which is obviously a much bigger target, a bunch of higher population, he's saying that that will now never be achieved either. And people were telling him weeks ago there was no way that was going to be achieved. So when people are telling you to you blue in the face weeks ago that that daily testing target, and by the way, you know from last week's podcast, I questioned the value of all this testing. Why were they setting such absurd targets they knew full well could not be achieved? I seem to recall listening to Matt Hancock saying, we aim to. Well, he's aimed, he's aimed and missed by some considerable distance. Yeah. Aim for the stars and you'll get to the moon. Try to get to the moon and you might just get into orbit. Well, he didn't get anywhere near he's that. Trying. Yeah. I, and I, today he said, to some extent, we are on target with testing. Well, it's a very different target to the one he set a few weeks ago. No doubt about that. Uh, very different aim. We would like to be testing 100,000. We are currently testing 39,000 a yeah. day. Mm -hmm. 100,000 is a great thing to aim for, and it's got us to 39,000 so far. And it's steadily rising yeah and, and you look at another thing he's done is he's, he's put the testing locations in weird places which people can't get to very easily and are too far out the way we saw pictures of testing locations whether it's car parks or football stadiums in some cases which are on the outskirts of town where nobody's going to they're nowhere near the hospitals and so forth where which are the hot spots for these viruses it seems hmm. that's another thing yeah. that's gone on yeah everybody's made mistakes hmm Hmm. And have you run out of milk while you've been in the middle of this lockdown? Personally, no, I haven't, but I know what you're getting at. Um, you know, we've all made mistakes, hmm. even with our small 
daily decisions. We make mistakes. Yeah. yeah. We're not infallible. And sure to hell our government isn't infallible. They have 400 different opinions. And they're doomed from the off because of, they've got so many lawyers and no two lawyers ever agree on anything. Yeah, and there are people within the government who I don't have a huge amount of confidence in. And by that, I'm going to refer specifically to the uh, education minister in England, Gavin Williamson. Uh, he announced the other day that schools will be closed for the foreseeable future, certainly for the period of the lockdown three weeks. And this is obviously causing issues with the extent to which schools can provide homeschooling facilities and whether parents are able to assist their children in their education. But Gavin Williamson, to me, again, he was the defence secretary last year who gave an absolutely appalling interview on Good Morning Britain to Richard Madeley, uh, where Richard Madeley ended up cutting him off because he wouldn't answer the question properly about, um, about Salisbury and uh, the, the, the Skripal case and the language Gavin Williamson had used at the time, some very loose language. He ended up having to resign over all that business, Gavin Williamson. A matter of months later, Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister. Williamson is back in the Cabinet. And when he was given that press conference the other day, he was still speaking in that very slow, monotone voice like that. He's got a terrible reputation for uh, within Whitehall and within junior ministers and with, among the Conservative backbenchers. I've got no idea why he was allowed back into the Cabinet. One answer, Marcus. Hmm. Run for Prime Minister and you can appoint the people you want. However, we voted for the Prime Minister we've got, hmm. and I think he's made the odd mistake in his appointments. But, on the other hand, if the opposition had got in, I don't think they'd have got a single one right. Very likely, very likely. But we, again, so let's we, back we, them. We, we have not keep snapping at their heels if we had had a media as pusillanimous and poisonous as we have nowadays, snapping at the heels of Churchill all the way through trying to run the war, we would have lost it. Well, hang on, in World War II, we, did, we had a diverse range of newspapers, some of which were conservative, some of which were Labour. I think the big difference in World War II was that in those days we had a Labour opposition who was led by a grown-up in Clement Attlee who was really trying to help the war effort. We don't have that luxury today. There are many would say that we didn't have a grown-up in the position of leading the country, Winston Churchill. Bear in mind that Winston Churchill was kept out of government for two years prior to the war because everybody knew damn well that if he had got control of the levers of power, he'd have had us in a war within two weeks, a war which we would have lost because we had no armament. Well, we could argue about Winston Churchill's legacy. His legacy both before and after World War II was far from impressive. But in the space, particularly in our darkest hour, for that 12-month period in particular, it really was a case of cometh the hour, cometh the man. But what I, the basic point I'm getting at is the difference between World War II and today is that in Clement Attlee, not only was Clement Attlee brought into the Churchill's inner circle, the wartime cabinet, but Churchill was he admitted years later when none of it mattered anymore, he admitted he was damn grateful for Attlee's advice on occasions. I don't imagine such a scenario would have existed uh, if Jeremy Corbyn was invited into an inner circle or now in the case of the new Labour leader, Sakia Starmer. I can't think of anybody whatsoever in the Labour Party I would invite into a coalition government. Yeah, but that, 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 is, that, is the, yeah, that is the sign of the times we live in. But it is the... It, it, 
it is the duty of the press under any circumstance to ask responsible questions and hold those we elect to account. However, what we are seeing at the moment is an irresponsible narrative in the mainstream media where far too much emphasis is being put on this so-called peak. And as I've already explained in this podcast, where that peak, you know, as you have said, there's too much emphasis put on this word peak. And secondly, even if you manage to lower things and level things off, it doesn't mean that we all live happily ever after. And this is what I'm coming on to next. Now, for example, in Denmark, a country with a much lower population, obviously, than this country, we've seen a return to school for very young children, but under very strict conditions. They're being kept two metres apart. Now, in British society, that would be very difficult indeed because the classrooms are too small and the class sizes are too big. It simply wouldn't be practical. And we're told that children are the least likely to become seriously ill upon getting COVID-19, but they will still be carriers. And in this country, we have a culture where they very often get to and from school via public transport. When they're at school, they come into close proximity with teachers, with dinner ladies, and so on. We have a culture where a very large number of families have both parents out working during the school day. Children are very often cared for by their grandparents in the hours after school until their parents finish work. And under those circumstances, young children would pose a major risk to their grandparents and could easily, I'm not going to miss my words on this, they could easily end up killing them by infecting them with the virus. It is that serious. So I think based on that, it's going to be some considerable time before the schools even come close to reopening. I would agree with you. However, we still have a need for a sufficient number of people to catch this virus to establish that we have some kind of herd immunity, assuming, and we must make this assumption, that immunity is given for a period of time by having had the disease. Is that an assumption too far? Um, it's an assumption based on probabilities. Hmm. Most viruses provide a solution in terms of immunity for those who have survived it. It is an assumption too far by your standard to consider bothering looking for a vaccine. But of course we must look for one because we must be optimistic and we must strive to find a vaccine that works. We found it for many things. We haven't found a vaccine for the common cold, Mark, here. But we're being told that the Oxford researchers are going to start testing a vaccine as soon as this week. And even if they succeed very quickly, realistically, it won't be out until at least the end of the year. However, they may not succeed very quickly. And then we have to look into next year and, and possibly well beyond that. Now, there are two problems with, um, to, to me, the herd immunity is that it could be just a very short space of time. And then, okay, or it could be no time at all. We don't know, as we've already established. We don't know. So then you could end up easing restrictions, and they could say, okay, that would stimulate a certain amount of economic activity, but who on earth would want to go to a cafe or a restaurant at the moment? I don't know. So it would far from be a return to normal for the economy. And the other is, if you started to relax restrictions, whether it's in a month, two months' time, and that gave an increase in daily cases, an increase in deaths, 
it would overwhelm the NHS and any economic gain could be lost in terms of the amount it's cost in the NHS in terms of daily resources they've got to put onto it without even mentioning the cost in terms of human lives because every single person who dies is somebody's father, mother, grandmother, somebody's child. There's the human aspect to it as well. So in terms of striking a balance between the economic need and the medical need, they, they go hand in hand. If you start allowing people to, to mix more, you risk an increase in daily number of cases, an increased number of, daily number of deaths. But at the same time, that would put increased pressure on the NHS and the amount it's costing the taxpayer anyway. Oh, yeah. Um, a virus like this, I'm sorry, is a lose-lose situation. Precisely. But Precisely. what we have to look at is what are the losses. Let's look at oil for a moment. Hmm. It's a good indicator of world trade. For the first time in history, oil today was minus $7 for WTI. Brent crude was holding at about $21, hmm. And now uh, other oil, um, June and July forward oil, is standing at $21. But at one stage today, uh, it still is today just, uh, one stage today, the dealers, they're the brokers for oil, had commitments that exceeded requirement by almost a third. There has been roughly a third drop in the amount of oil being used per DM worldwide in that we normally use about 100 to 110 million barrels of oil a day in industry, etc., worldwide. That has dropped by a consistent 29, 30 million barrels per day which is a staggering drop, especially be prepared to be staggered if, if you're a broker who has bought seven days supply of oil, around 700 million barrels, which are broken down into smaller orders to supply to the various outlets that they supply and they don't need what two thousand two and a half thousand barrels of that oil it's a bit embarrassing for them and they are now having to pay well it was at uh, 2 p.m eastern sta standard time america uh, was settlement time and that meant that they had to take pay for and take delivery of their oil what were they to do with it well this... they were now having to pay for storage luckily the government in America stepped in 
in a big way and they replenished their depleted stocks of oil. It would appear that they have been depleting their oil uh, reserves, A, on the basis that shale oil was come on the stream, and B, uh, because it saved them having to spend the money and it made the economy look good by not spending all the money to store oil. So that's a useful barometer then to the, the state of the world economy and, and just the extent to which things are crash, crashing from that point of view. But as I've already demonstrated, if you, if you encouraged more economic activity, that would in turn lead not only to more deaths from a human point of view, but also more demand on the British health service and health services around the world. So there, there, is, there is no win situation here as such. But I want to conclude this podcast by something that's not getting talked about enough in my view, and that is the, the very human aspect of the situation that we're in. Now, for example, I mentioned grandparents a few moments ago. We know that older people's health and happiness is largely dependent on human interaction, seeing their families, spending time with their grandchildren, having an active social life with things to look forward to. And all that has now been taken away from them, and they're likely to be deprived of those things for some considerable time. That's bound to have um, an impact on their physical and their mental well-being, and it'll lead to health problems of its own. Now, to give an example, a number of British listeners will be able to relate to, if, like me, you were looking forward to the World Snooker Championship, which was due to start last Saturday and run for 17 days. Obviously, that's not happening. The BBC is running old matches um, in the afternoons to keep people company, and on Saturday it was, they, they showed 1982, that famous victory, the biggest shock of all time, Tony Knowles 10, Steve Davis 1. And one of the commentators was a, a lady, the only time the BBC has ever used a female commentator was 1982, a lady called Viva Selby, who is now Viva Selby NBE, first ever world women's champion in 1976. She is now 90 years of age and she lives in Gosforth in the northeast of England. And she still plays snooker to a good standard. She also coaches young people and also referees. She is out two to three days and evenings a week. Very active, enjoys the company of young people. A lot of young people get on with her. The younger female players in particular at world level look up to her as someone who gives good advice. Still as sharp as a razor. She appeared as a contestant on Countdown many years ago as well. The words and numbers game for those on television quiz. Those of you who live outside the United Kingdom might not have heard of it. But she has been taken, in effect, in the last month from somebody, a very sprightly 90-year-old, who had lots to look forward to every day. And she always said, I refuse to grow old. I'm living life at full blast. And a very vibrant 90-year-old is now somebody who's got to stay at home a lot of the time. Now, I'm hoping she's found ways to occupy her time. But you apply that to thousands, if not millions, of people in old age around the United Kingdom and elsewhere. What I'm getting at is, in terms of health and well-being, they may not be getting coronavirus by self-isolating, but it's having a terrible impact on people at that time of life in other ways. It's having a terrible impact on all sorts of people. What about all the couples that find themselves in a position of having had a happy marriage because, well, most of the time they were apart, now find themselves in a position of for better, for worse, but for God's sake, not for lunch. Mm, yeah, divorce yeah. courts will be rammed full of people mm. after this. And what about those who had a slightly abusive relationship? 
Now they can't escape it. They are in a permanent situation of being locked in the same room as their abuser. Yeah, and it goes beyond that. Everything you said is absolutely correct, but it goes beyond that as well. It's affecting younger people. I mean, I'm 36. Nobody is is looking at younger people who have always had a cautionary eye cast over them by teachers. I Mm. wonder what will come as a result of this um, for cases of uh, child abuse and incest. Well, I, I dread to think I really do, but even on not quite as serious a level as that, but it does bring problems. It's like, I'm 36, as you know, I live on my own. I have quite an active life in many ways, but I, I worked out the other day, I have not touched another human being, whether it's a handshake, a hug, anything, for six weeks. And the reality is, I might not get to touch another human being for many months. No handshakes, no hugs, nothing. Now, everybody who lives alone is in the same position we can't see our families, we can't see our partners. And it's taken its, t- its toll in terms of personal relationships. I recall England's Health Secretary Matt Hancock saying at the start of the lockdown, if you're seeing someone but you don't live with them, decide right now whether you're willing to move in with them. Well, if you're in a newish relationship, you're not ready to make that kind of commitment to each other just yet. You're faced with the reality of not being able to see your partner for months on end. And can a relationship survive that? It doesn't matter whether your partner lives a mile up the road or at the other end of the country. You can't see them, and that is difficult. And if you're single, you haven't got a hope in hell whatsoever of finding a new partner or beginning a new relationship. Now, to give you an example, I know one of our listeners, Peter, in the Republic of Ireland. He lives in a semi-rural area in the west of Ireland. Peter is 60 years of age. He's got underlying health issues and isn't taking any chances whatsoever. And he lives in his, what was once a farmhouse, he leaves once a day to walk his dogs, in the, his dog rather, I think he's just not the one in the local woods, but apart from that, he doesn't go out. He's got an 18-year-old son, and just when it looked like the lockdown was about to begin in the Republic of Ireland, um, his son was, it was been seeing this young lady for not very long, the same age as him, she, she was uh, 18. And uh, Peter said to his son, you know, that they had a very similar announcement to the one we had in the Republic of Ireland, you know, make your decision now where you're going to be for this period. The son decided he was going to move in uh, with this uh, with, with this girlfriend of his, same age, 18 years of age. Of course, at that age, you, you, you're a bit naive. Everybody is at that age. And Peter said to his son, he said, look, if this doesn't work out, I'm afraid I am not letting you back into the house until this lockdown is over because of my health. You really have got to make your bed and lie in it quite literally here. Well, guess what happened? The son moved in with the girlfriend. A week or two later, they realized they didn't like each other that much after all and certainly weren't ready to live together. The son has fortunately now found alternative accommodation in a flat somewhere else. But you imagine now you replicate that up and down, the not just our country, Ireland, and indeed the world. There are numerous situations like this, aren't there? From a more humorous point of view, a friend of mine, I asked how her daughter was coping in London because she was in a shared flat with two strangers, relative strangers, and her boyfriend lived about six miles away. And she said, well, they gave up uh, on the idea um, and she's moved into her boyfriend's flat. Um, and I said, um, is, you know, his was a bachelor pad. Um, How are they coping? 
she said well they are finding that they're, they're a little bit on top of each other most of the time and i said wasn't that the aim of the <laughs> yeah so sometimes there are benefits yeah but you know you've probably been in situations like this yourself like when i was a student i think back to my time at university and my time at uh, journalism training college and i think all those time i was living in um, c communal environments of one sort or another where was it whether it was in halls or in or in houses and whilst again it's i'm quite a private i can I'm, i can be very sociable but i also need my privacy i've learned that about myself and whilst i i think anyone listening to this who's ever been a student or has ever been in the armed forces or has ever experienced communal living will have experienced issues uh, at one time or another with other people's habits irritating them or them inadvertently causing a level of inconvenience. Now, when you can get out and about, whether it's going home for the weekend or just taking a break from that setting for a period, you can, get, you can live through it. But at the moment, it must be just be far too intense for those living in any kind of communal environment, whether it's friendships, acquaintances, students, whatever, for this length of time and with this level of intensity, there must be all sorts of tensions going on at the moment. I think that's inevitable. Um, that's part of being in a grown-up world under pressure. Mm. Um, however, I would rather the intensity of the relationships at the moment over those, uh, you know, let's not feel too sorry for ourselves. I'd rather be in the position we're in at the moment uh, than those who in 1914 were standing in the Somme well, yes, I would. I, 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 dead, yeah. dead bodies mm. under fire perpetually, trenches that kept filling up with raw sewage, trench foot rotting their bodies, and they were there for four years. Well, yes, when you, when you put it into that kind of perspective, it, it does you know, give us a sense of a portion about things, but that's not to say that this current situation is not causing significant problems, whether it's sexual abuse, domestic violence, or just people, because of the intensity of it, uh, being stuck indoors for long periods with people who either don't know or do like, but only, only like in small doses and the lack of privacy and everything else. It is bringing its own form of hardships in various ways, some more serious than others, but it is bringing hardships, no doubt about that. And again, there, there are other, other problems as well. Now, you can probably do your best to explain to your young children, whether they're toddlers or primary school children, explain why they can't see their friends or why they can't see their grandparents. And we can do our best via Skype or Zoom to keep them in touch. Um, but for people in care homes with dementia, it's going to be absolutely horrible. And you ask anyone who works in a care home, and as you know, a relation of mine was in a care home a few years ago, so I've got some personal experience of this, and I know this to be the case. They will tell you that the mood of people with dementia depends on a very large extent on human interaction and activities. How do you explain to people with dementia that they cannot see their own families? It's very... You don't. That's why there's a 90% percent increase in deaths in care homes yeah and then this this is a this is a this is a very serious matter it's very very hard and do you know what i'm afraid just listening to the mood music and going back to where we were near the start of this podcast i'm afraid i think we're being prepared by the government for significant restrictions 
on our movement to be in place for some considerable time. Right now, there is no vaccine available, nor will there be until the end of the year, even if the Oxford researchers manage to find something suitable this week because of all the stages you've got to go through in testing. We are looking at many months before it's rolled out at the bare minimum. I'm afraid I think there's going to be significant restrictions on our way of life for months ahead. And I think we've all got to batten down and understand that to a very large extent. Let's get, take two things. One, we can realistically expect a hit on our economy if all goes back to normal at the beginning of September, and I don't think it will, the hit on our, our economy is estimated to be a, a one-third to 35% reduction in GDP. Mm. That's a big hit. The largest hit that our economy has ever had. Yes. Then, that will give rise to all sorts of situations and that will mean that we will be feeling the effects, direct effects of this, still feeling it two years from now. All the people who will find that they are in negative equity on their housing, they won't clear that mm. within two years. Mm. It's not easy. It ain't going to be easy, but let's put things in perspective. F between 40 and 60% of the entire population of Europe died of the plague. I don't think this is going to be that bad. Mm. No, I, I agree with you. But... 100 million died of Spanish flu immediately after the First World War. 50 to 100 million. That's more We're than still died in the trenches. 175,000 worldwide. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's more than died in the trenches, died of the, uh, the, the Spanish flu. But what I'm getting at, okay, you can't answer this. We're not claiming any expertise whatsoever. Where do you think we will be in terms of our daily lives? at say end of august okay i'll give you that barometer end of august where do you think we'll be end of august near as damn it the same position we're in now and the reason i said end of august is because that's the time where schools are starting to prepare to go back they go back in scotland mid to late august england and wales northern ireland start of september do you think the schools will be going back at that point i think they will be modified hmm because we've already outlined what the problems are in terms of class sizes and the arrangements for getting them to and from school and where they go after school. So, okay. So you think we're going to be stuck with this for at least that length of time then? I do. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I try I and end up. I also think, and I'm going to stop you ending on a, a high note, I'm afraid. I also think that there is still a possibility of one to two million deaths in Britain as a result of this virus. And it may be over the next two or three years. Mm. But again, but the, the, question, the, the question would then be, the question would then be how many of those one to two million deaths, bearing in mind how many we lose every week anyway. 
is how many of them would have been old people who are nearing the end of their days and how many of them would be considerably younger people? That's the really big question, isn't it? Uh, the, it's the really big question, but there is a strong possibility that that, if there is no herd immunity, that will be the number of deaths over the next couple of years, hmm. extra deaths, not um, how many die anyway, hmm. extra deaths between one and two million is a very strong possibility in Britain. Well, a lot depends on how quickly we can get this vaccine tested and out there. Can I introduce a separate word? If we can get a vaccine. Yeah, we don't, we, don't, we don't know the answer to that question. It could, it could be that when they start testing it this week, they get an answer very, very quickly, and then we could be looking at a rollout towards the end of this year. It could be that we are many months away. It could be that that day never comes, as you say, in the same way we haven't got a vaccine for the common cold. So may, that, I, may I point out that even if we are in a position to roll it out at the end of this year, we will not be in a position to give the vaccine to very many people at the end of the year because we of the problem of size of production. We might be able to give our health workers a vaccine the end of this year through to March next year. I'll tell you another problem you're going to have, and this has already started right now, in that the conspiracy theorists online are already beginning, and I'm talking about David Icke and all his hangers-on, plus others, are already beginning, do not have the vaccine because it's the Illuminati New World Order. And I'm already seeing that. I know you're not on Facebook. I am. I'm seeing this spreading like wildfire already. Misinformation. Then you wonder why I'm not on Facebook. Yeah, you got chucked off there is why you're not on Facebook. I remember when it happened about 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm, seeing, going back on. I, I, I'm seeing this regular basis already, pretty much every time I log into Facebook now, cranky elements spreading misinformation about the vaccine and about the nature of this virus. But you're not going to stop me ending on a positive note, because I do want to know this. How have you been enjoying yourself this last week? To me, it's not a great change. Um, yes, we miss a certain amount of um, social life, but um, we have a fairly extensive garden. Mm -hmm. I've had the great excitement with uh, Lee um, over the last few days of clearing an area of about 45 feet by uh, 20 odd feet of brambles, six feet high in our neighbor's garden. Her husband died uh, just over a year ago, but he had had dementia uh, for a couple of years and their uh, vegetable garden is the most appalling chaos you've ever come across. I have more scratches and um, cuts on my arms from um, hacking up brambles. And we had a huge bonfire today. Um, you shouldn't be telling us that, should you? You shouldn't hmm? be telling us that, should you? Is that even legal? Yeah. 
I saw people get into saw people getting into trouble for lighting bonfires at the moment. I keep reading about it. Uh, I think that's lighting um, gratuitous bonfires out of boredom. There was nothing. Uh, no, hmm. um, it's to dispose of waste, and there is no other way of disposing of it. So you're on, you're on about scratches, then. Um, I, have you got more, on your arms and on your hands now? Have you got more scratches? Than you have ferret bites because you're a collector of ferrets and you never seem to know how many you've got at any one time and this all started because you were looking for something to, to kill all the vermin that live in your rural area where you live or in that in the cottage yeah. house you live in Don't how many me. how many ferrets have you got and if you how, what have you got more of at the moment scratches from your gardening or ferret bites oh and i haven't got any ferret bites um they're behaving we, yeah they're behaving very well I haven't been bitten for a long time, and nor has Lee. Um, you've got, you've got the them moment, trained, have you? Is that what you're saying? Well, they've become very um, habituated to handling. Mm. Um, and um, the only bites we get now are if they're playing, and it's violent play, and they tend to be quite violent in their play. Yeah, I've, I've seen YouTube videos about this. Apparently, the trick is to scruff them on the neck, and um, they, they learn how far they can go when they're, they're violent playing, if you do that. That's been your experience yeah. as well, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, don't try that with uh, a female uh, with young. It doesn't matter how habituated they are. Um, if they take exception, they will take exception. Yeah, and I, I can confirm, having spoken to Greg a lot about his ferrets in the last 12 months, believe me, he has had some experiences of uh, ferret bites and stuff like that. Oh, I've anyway, some really bad ones. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I remember you telling me about it. But um, anyway, as for myself, I've been keeping fairly occupied. I, I take my, uh, my walk every day. I tend to do a lap around Cardiff Bay when I know it's really, really quiet and I hardly see anyone and, you know, by the waterfront, I can see the swans and the ducks. And I, I do get my exercise. I make a point of going out every day for doing about a mile's walking just to keep me active. And it's good for you anyway, you know, uh, get, get the sun's rays on you a little bit as well. Sometimes I walk in the middle of the night when it's really, really quiet. And that brings its own pleasures, you know, moonlight and everything else. Talking of moonlight and everything like that, one community that is suffering at the moment, as we know, is... Um, the Islamic community, the Muslim community. Ramadan is due to start later this week. I, I, my thoughts are very much with the, the local Muslim community I know because what they do is when they break their fast at sunset, at, at sunset when the sun goes down, um, their community meets up in a big hall and they feed everyone. And you don't have to be a Muslim. Anyone can turn up and they will feed you. And each evening they have one thirtieth of the Quran read. And of course, it's a big community thing. It's not just for Muslims. Anyone can turn up. You can even watch the moon rising with them at the start of Ramadan. They don't mind. Everyone's welcome. I live among the oldest Muslim community in the United Kingdom. So my thoughts are with them at the moment. They're being deprived of a community get together and a very sacred time of year. As for me, what else have I been doing? I've been watching, um, I've been watching repeats of new tricks because you got me back into new tricks and I, I've been, I'm enjoying that at the moment. I'm also on the second series of Alfie the same pet where they're in Spain. Um, just get it's a little bit of a slow burner that it's not quite as good so far as the series in, in Germany as far as I can tell but that's still classic comedy it's it's dated well that has you can tell it's the 1980s but it has dated well so all in all I'm keeping uh, I'm keeping fairly active as well in my own little way I haven't got a garden as you know 
Um, but as you can see, me and Greg are both doing our best to enjoy life as best we can under the circumstances. But we've gone on far too long, as we always do. So my thanks as always to Greg. My thanks to you for listening. Do please stay safe, stay indoors, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>